0: THE REVENGE OF THE MERMAIDS Because they could not save Persephone from the abduction of Hades, the Oceanids, that is, the sea nymphs, were punished. They were turned into terrible animals, half woman, half fish. Poor nymphs, what were they going to do against such a sinister god? But now that they were monsters, they had power. If men fall prey to their songs, they eat them. In the end, we all got to eat something. But the mermaid's plan was different. The plan was to save all women from men's abductions and to stop them from coming with their sheep to kidnap them and to subject them to the terrible captivity of home life. In truth, the sirens fulfilled the duties that the nymphs could not. In doing so, they answered Persephone's secret prayers. Welcome to Tres Cuentos, the podcast dedicated to the literary narratives of Latin America. The short story written by the Puerto Rican author Mayra Santos Febres can be found in Spanish on the website Círculo de Poesía. The link to the site is in the transcripts. Initially, I found Mayra Santos Fevres in the book Afro-Puerto Ricans in the Short Story, an anthology, edited by Victor C. Simpson. I knew I had to present her story, Marina's Fragrance. After trying to contact the Spanish publisher for permission to feature the story in the podcast, my next move was to reach the author. I called the National Library of Puerto Rico, I thought librarians could help me find a needle in a haystack. Unfortunately, due to COVID-19, no one was working. Feeling that I might have to go with a different author, my stubborn mind tried two more attempts. I called the University of Puerto Rico and later the National Foundation for the Popular Culture. In this last one, a nice man answered. I explained what I needed and he provided me a phone number. Yet, he was not sure if it would work. It did, and I am pleased to say that we were granted permission to present the story and were able to interview the author. Thus, with the Afro-Puerto Rican writer Mayra Santos Febres, we finalize our journey through Afro-descendants' literature. The following story can be found in the book, Urban Oracles, stories by Mayra santos Febres, translated by Nathan Badoff, and Lydia Platón-Lázaro, published by Brooklyn Books. The story, Marina's Fragrance, comes in the voice of storyteller Diane Macklin, and I will tell you more about her in the comments. Mayra santos Febres tells us the story of Marina, a young woman who knows how to harbor fragrances in her flesh. In time, her feelings equal the sense her body remembers. But her divine gift is desired by and resented by those who cannot cage
1: her. Marina's Fragrance by Myra Santos Febres. Narrated and adapted by Diane Macklin. Doña Marina Paris was a woman of many charms. At 49, her skin still breathed those fragrances which, when she was young, had left the men of her town captivated and searching for ways to lick her flanks to see if they tasted as good as they smelled. And every day they smelled of something different. At times, a delicate aroma of oregano brujo would drift out of the folds of her thighs. Other days she perfumed the air with masculine mahogany or with small wild lemons but most of the time she exuded pure satisfaction From the time she was very little Doña Marina had worked in the Pinchimoja takeout restaurant an establishment opened in the growing town of Carolina by her father Esteban Paris Previously Esteban had been a virtuoso clarinetist a road builder and a molasses sampler for the victoria sugarcane plantation his common-law wife edovina vera was the granddaughter of one pancrasia hernandez a spanish shopkeeper fallen on hard times from whom time had set a trap in the form of a black man from canovanas he showed her what it meant to really enjoy a man's company after she had lost faith in almost everything, including God. Marina grew up in the Pinchimoha. Mama Edovina, who gave birth to another sister every year, and trusted Marina with the restaurant and made her responsible for watching Maria the half-crazed woman who helped Mama move the giant pots of rice and beans, the pots of tanapa and sauce, of chicken soup, roasted sweet potato, and salt cod with raisins, the specialty of the house. Her special task was to make sure that Maria didn't cook with coconut oil. Someone had to protect the restaurant's reputation and keep people from thinking that the owners were a crowd of Blacks from Louisa. From eight to 13 years of age, Marina exuded spicy, salty, and sweet odors from all the hinges of her flesh. And since she was always enveloped in her fragrances, Marina didn't even notice that they were bewitching every man who passed close to her. Her pompous smile, her kinky curls hidden in braids or kerchiefs, her high cheekbones, and the scent of the day drew happiness from even the most decrepit sugar cane cutter, from the skinniest road worker burnt by the sun, from her father, the frustrated clarinetist, who rose from his stupor of alcohol and daydreams to stand near his Marina just to smell her as she passed by. Eventually, the effect Marina had on men began to preoccupy Mama Edovina. She was especially worried by the way she was able to stir Esteban from his alcoholic's chair. The rest of the time he sat prostrate from five o'clock every morning after he finished buying sacks of rice and plantains from the supplier who drove by in his cart on the way down to Nueva Esperanza Market. Marina was 13, a dangerous age. So one day, Mama Edovina opened a bottle of Christopher Columbus rum from Mayagas, set it next to her partner's chair, and went to look for Marina in the kitchen where she was peeling sweet potatoes and plantains. Today, you begin working for the Velasquez. They'll give you food, new clothes, and Doña Georgina's house is near to school. Mama Edovina took Marina out the back of the Pinchimoja towards Jose de Diego Street. They cross behind Alberti's pharmacy to the house of Doña Georgina, a rich and pious white woman whose passion for cassava stewed with shrimp was known throughout the town. It was at about this time that Marina began to smell like the ocean. She would visit her parents every weekend. Esteban, a bit more pickled each time, reached the point where he no longer recognized her, for he became confused thinking that she would smell like the daily specials. When Marina arrived perfumed with the red snapper or shrimp that they ate regularly in the elegant mansion, her father took another drag from the bottle which rested by his chair and lost himself in memories of his passion for the clarinet. The pinchimoja no longer attracted the people that it used to. It had lapsed into the category of breakfast joint. You could eat funche there, or corn fritters with white cheese, coffee, and stew. The office workers and road builders had moved to a different takeout restaurant with a new attraction that could replace the dark body of the 13-year-old redolent with flavorful odors. A jukebox, which at lunchtime played Felipe Rodriguez, Perez Prado, and Benny Moore's big band. It was in the Velasquez house that Marina became aware of her remarkable capacity to harbor fragrances in her flesh She had to get up before five every morning so she could prepare the rice and beans and their accompaniments. This was the condition imposed by the Velasquez in exchange for allowing her to attend the public school. One day, while she was thinking about the food that she had to prepare the next morning, she caught her body smelling like the menu. Her elbows smelled like fresh recarillo. Her armpits smelled like garlic, onions, and red peppers. Her forearms like roasted sweet potato with butter. The space between her flowering breasts like pork loin fried in onions. And further down, like grainy white rice, just the way her rice always came out. From then on, she imposed a regimen of drawing remembered scents from her body. The aromas of herbs came easily. Marjoram and mint were her favorites. Once she felt satisfied with the results of these experiments, Marina began to experiment with emotional scents. One day she tried to imagine the fragrance of sadness. She thought long and hard of the day Mama Edovina sent her to live in the Velasquez household. She thought of Esteban, her father, sitting in his chair, imagining what his life could have been as a clarinetist in the Mambo Band or in César Concepción's Combo. Immediately an order of mangrove swamps and sweaty sheets, a smell somewhere between rancid and sweet began to waft from her body. Then she worked on the smells of solitude, and desire. Although she could draw those aromas from her own flesh, the exercise left her exhausted. It was too much work. Instead, she began to collect odors from her employers, from neighbors near the Velasquez house, from servants who lived in the little rooms off the courtyards of hens, and from the clothesline where Dona Georgina's son hung his underwear. Marina didn't like Ippolito Velasquez Jr. at all. She had surprised him once in the bathroom masturbating, which gave off an odor of oatmeal and sweet rust. This was the same smell, a bit more acid, which his underpants dispelled just before being washed. He was six years older than she, sickly and yellow, with emaciated legs and without even an ounce of a bottom. Escolapio, she called him quietly when she saw him passing, smiling as always with those high cheekbones of a presumptuous negress. The gossips around town recounted that the boy spent almost every night in the Trumbasos neighborhood, looking for mulatta girls upon whom he could do damage. He was enchanted by dark flesh. At times, Ippolito looked at Marina with a certain eagerness. Once he even insinuated that they should make love, but Marina turned him down. He looked so ugly to her, so weak and foolish, But just imagining Ippolito laying a finger on her body, she began to smell like rotten fish and she felt sick. (music) After a year and a half of living with the Velasquez, Marina began to take note of the men around town. At Carolina's annual town fair that year, she met... Eladio Salaman, who with one long smell left her madly in love. He had a lazy gaze and his body was tight and fibrous as the sweetheart of a sugar cane. His reddish skin reminded her of the tops of the mahogany tables in the Velasquez house. When Eladio Salaman drew close to Marina that night, He arrived with a tidal wave of new fragrances that left her enraptured for hours while he led her by the arm all around the town square. The ground of the rainforest, mint leaves sprinkled with dew, a brand new wash basin, morning ocean spray, Marina began to practice the most difficult odors to see if she could invoke Elario Salamans. This effort drew her attention away from all her other duties. And at times, she inadvertently served her employers dishes that had the wrong fragrances. One afternoon, the shrimp and cassava came out smelling like pork chops with vegetables. Another day, The rice with pigeon peas perfumed the air with the aroma of greens and salt cod. The crisis reached such extremes that a potato casserole came out of the oven smelling exactly like the Velasquez boys underpants. They had to call a doctor for everyone in the house who ate that day, vomited until they coughed up nothing but bile. They believed they had suffered severe food poisoning. Marina realized that the only way to control her fascination with Eladio was to see him again. Secretly, she searched for him on all the town's corners, using her sense of smell, until two days later, she found him sitting in front of the Cerquera Theater, drinking a soda. That afternoon, Marina invented an excuse and did not return to the house in time to prepare lunch. Later, she ran home in time to cook dinner, which was the most flavorful meal that was ever eaten in the Velasquez dining room throughout the whole history of the town, for it smelled of love and Eladio Salaman's sweet body. One afternoon, while strolling through the neighborhood, Ippolito saw the two of them, Marina and Eladio, hand in hand, smiling and entwined in each other's aromas. He remembered how the dark woman had rejected him, and now he found her lost in the caresses of that black sugarcane cutter. He waited for the appropriate moment and went to speak with his esteemed mother. Who knows what Ipolito told her. But when Marina arrived back at the house, Doña Georgina was furious. Indecent, evil, stinking black woman. And Mama Edelvina was forced to intervene to convince the mistress not to throw her daughter out. Doña Georgina agreed, but only on the condition that Marina take a cut in her wages and an increase in her supervision. Marina couldn't go to the market unaccompanied. She couldn't stroll on the town square during the week. And she could only communicate with Eladio through messages. Those were terrible days. Marina couldn't sleep. She couldn't work. Her vast memory of smells disappeared in one fell swoop. The food she prepared came out insipid. All of it smelled like an empty chest of drawers. This caused Doña Regina to redouble her insults. Conniving little thing, Jezebel, polecat. One afternoon, Marina decided she wouldn't take any more. She decided to summon Eladio through her scent, one that she had made in a measured and defined way and shown to him one day of kisses in the untilled back lots of the sugar plantation. This is my fragrance, Marina told him. Remember it well. And Eladio, fascinated, drank it so completely that Marina's fragrance was would be absorbed into his skin like a tattoo. Marina studied the direction of the wind carefully. She opened the windows of the mansion and prepared to perfume the whole town with herself. Immediately, the stray dogs began to howl and the citizens rushed hurriedly through the streets for they thought they were producing that smell of frightened bromelades and burning saliva. Two blocks down the street, Aladio, who was talking to some friends, recognized the aroma. He excused himself and ran to see Marina. But as they kissed, the Velasquez boy broke in on them and, insulting him all the way, threw Eladio out of the house. As soon as the door was closed, Ipelio propositioned Marina that if she let him touch her breasts, He would maintain their secret and not say anything to his mother. You can keep your job and escape mama's insults too, he told her, approaching. Marina became so infuriated that she couldn't control her body. From all of her pores wafted a scaly odor mixed with the stench of burned oil and acid used for cleaning engines. The odor was so intense that Ippolito had to lean on the living room's big colonial sofa with the medallions, overwhelmed by a wave of dizziness. He felt as if she had pulled the floor out from under him and he fell squarely down on the freshly mopped tiles. Marina sketched a victorious smile. With a firm tread, she strode into Doña Dorina's bedroom. She filled the room with an aroma of desperate melancholy. She had drawn it from her father's body. That trampled the sheets and dressers. She was going to kill that old woman with pure frustration. Calmly, she went to her room, bundled her things together, and gazed around the mansion. That pest, the Velasquez boy, lay on the floor in a state from which he would never fully recover. The master bedroom smelled of stale dreams that accelerated the palpitations of the heart. The whole house gave off disconnected, nonsensical aromas so that nobody in town ever wanted to visit the Velasquez house again. Marina smiled. Now she would go see Eladio. She would go resuscitate the Pinchi Mocha. She would leave that house forever. But before exiting through the front door, a few filthy words, which surprised even her, escaped from her mouth. Walking down the balcony stairs, she was heard to say with determination, "'Let them say now!' That blacks stink.
0: This story reminds me of the book by the Chilean American born in Peru, Isabel Allende, as Water for Chocolate. The difference is that Puerto Rican Mayra Santos Febres gives it another dimension. Marina's character somehow evokes the feminine instinct to create and desire freely. However, before we explore how religious and political systems redesigned women and minorities' roles to fit into the plan of modernity, I must introduce the fantastic storyteller that gave voice to today's cuento or story. Diane Macklin has dedicated over two decades to the art of storytelling and listening. She engages audiences with a dynamic theatrical style, blending in her background as a certified educator, dancer, and cultural mediator. She has performed from Massachusetts to California in many different venues and festivals. She is the 2000 18, winner of the Jackie Torrance Tall Tale Contest for the National Association of Black Storytellers Festival and Conference. Diane lives as a narrative enthusiast and writer, fully invested in the ancient power of storytelling to transform, heal, and explore the unique yet universal elements of humanity. As a performer, workshop presenter, keynote speaker, and teaching artist, Diane aims to make a difference one story at a time. To find more about Diane Macklin, you can visit her website, dianemacklin.com, and of course, I will share the link in the transcript. If you like the program, consider subscribing to the podcast by visiting our website www.trescuentos.com or in any podcast app you use to listen to your favorite shows. Also, if you have a topic or an author you would like us to consider for future programs, contact us through our website. Last, suppose you find value in what we're doing here at Tres Cuentos. In that case, we appreciate your positive comments on iTunes and, of course, share the episodes. And at this point, I must give a shout out to one of our listeners, Hugh Robertson. Mr. Robertson wrote us a very thoughtful reflection on the stories that we tell repeatedly and that we rarely question. So, muchas gracias, Hugh Robertson, for taking the time to write to us. But it is time to talk about the marvelous woman that wrote today's cuento, Mayra Santos Febres. The National Foundation for Popular Culture of Puerto Rico's website tells us that the vocation of Mayra Santos Febres is summed up in what she says give me words and I do anything with them. Santos Febres is a writer, professor, and poet. Like my mother did for me, Santos Febre's mother instilled in her a love of literature. The National Foundation for the Popular Culture of Puerto Rico tells us an anecdote about Santos Fevres' childhood. From a young age, she showed an interest in the world of lyrics. She kept a notebook where she wrote poetry. But the one that motivated Maida to have a career in literature was her seventh grade Spanish teacher, Yvonne Sanavitis. One day, the teacher discovered Maida writing in her notebook things that were not related to the class. The teacher approached the girl, looked at the writing, and said, Look at this. There is potential for a writer here. Santos Febres has been called the owner of what writer Ana Lidia Vega calls hyperconsciousness that is, the ability to think critically and beyond social conventions. The foundation continues saying that Mayra is an advocate of just causes, defending those who are marginalized and rejected by society. She is an anti-racism activist. These convictions come to light in her literary works, her short stories, poems, and novels. In her writings, she advocates for the sexual and personal freedom of women, the rights of homosexual and black communities, and the essence of Puerto Ricans as Caribbean and Antillean. Among Santos Febre's awards are the Radio Sarandi Award, part of the Juan Rulfo International Short Story Competition in Paris, France. Her novel, Sirena Selena, deals with the marginality of transvestites. It has received significant international reception, especially in France and Italy. But I'm not going to tell you anymore because after the comments, we'll have Maida santos Pebres sharing her experience as a Puerto Rican Afro-descendant writer. In the previous episodes on Afro-descendant literature, We talked a little bit about how religion long determined what was acceptable, beautiful, and standard in the Hispanic cosmos. Therefore, today we will take the train that connects the Catholic religion's colonial ideas to the ideologies of modernity. So we must refer to the article written by anthropologist Mara Viveros Bigoya, Blanqueamiento Social, Nación y Moralidad en América Latina social whitening nation, and morality in Latin America. Anthropologist Mara Viveros Bigoya reminds us about something we talked about in the previous episode. She says that in the Latin American colonial context, the legitimization of blood cleaning, which operated in the Iberian Peninsula and required documenting an ancestry without religious Jews or Muslims stain gradually became the need to prove that there were no black ancestors, such as mulattoes, sambos, or other colors, visible in the skin tone and physiological traits. At the same time, the same colonial dynamic that created the castes allowed processes of social ascent through whitening, allowing Indians and blacks to overcome the limits that their condition imposed on them through a process of successive interbreeds over several generations. And so, over time, color became a matter of reputation. Quoting Peter Wade, Viveros Vigoya tells us that a person could be white if he was publicly considered so. I remember a conversation with a Dominican man on our way to the National Storytelling Festival in Johnsburg, Tennessee. After realizing that we spoke Spanish. He told me that he also worked on a documentary about his family in addition to telling stories. He hoped the film would reflect a bit of the Dominican mentality regarding the fear that many had to accept that they had Afro blood. After all, most of his family had a lighter skin tone, but Afro traits could be inferred under detailed analysis. I told him that there was also such fear in some of my family members regarding the possible indigenous ancestor. We laughed at the coincidence, recognizing that such fear perhaps multiplies in the memory of many people. Viveros Bigoja reminds us that during colonial times, color, like memory, was a moldable category in everyday life and that it was defined according to the situation. Remember that Machado de Assis contrasted reality versus opinion in episode 35, The Bones' Secret. The Brazilian author said, If a thing can exist in someone's opinion without existing in reality, or exist in reality without existing in someone's opinion the conclusion must be that of the two parallel existences. The only one necessary is that of opinion, not reality, which is merely an additional convenience. And how does color end up gaining so much importance in Latin America? Unlike in the United States, where colonizers arrived with their families, In Latin America, many men left their women behind. White women were therefore scarce. Besides, contrary to the Northern Titan in Latin America, it was easier for slaves to buy freedom. These two variables and others found fertile ground in the newly born Latin American societies, thus contributing to the mestizaje, racial mixing. Additionally, since the social pyramid had the whites on the cusp and the indigenous people and Afros at the base, there was room to ascend in the middle. With a large number of mestizos growing and reaching wealth, racial status became a determinant for the white elite. So important was the matter of purity of blood that the responsibility ended up falling upon women's shoulders. Referring to the social agreement that ensured the purity of blood, Viveros Bigoya tells us that in this operation, it was crucial to control the sexual behavior of women of the elite regarded as the agents who could corrupt or stain the family, threatening the purity of blood that largely defined the social position of the elite in the social and racial hierarchy. Hence, the old excuse of the importance of a woman's innocence and virtue was equivalent to her family's honor. Indeed, there were many abortions during colonial times, since no pregnancy resulting from a relationship with a lower-ranking man could bring anything good. Above all, women should contribute to preserving the system that privileged their husbands, brothers, and fathers. As the Spanish saying goes, nadie sabe para quien trabaja. No one knows who they truly work for. Then, marriage became more relevant in defining social status. It became the institution that connected sexual domination with racial domination and the state with the family. During colonialism, policies against interracial marriage were defined, given that in the subconscious of many Latin American nations, there was the ghost of Haitians' black independence. It was necessary not to give in any way hope or power to the colored people. However, no matter how many rules were established to keep the elite pure and white, the same did not apply to ordinary people. Quoting Peter Wade, Viveros Bigoya tells us that consensual unions were frequent among the common layers of the colonial sites of Mexico, Lima, and Santa Fe de Bogotá, and seem to have been accepted as a cultural norm of that group. Also, female chastity had less value than in the elite, However, marriage was an institution widely valued by the entire population and was a goal to which everyone aspired. Perhaps, due to the high degree of mestizaje and the laxity with which the rules were followed, the colonial authorities resorted to the inquisition. Viveros Vigoya states that the Spanish and Portuguese colonizers linked sexual immorality to paganism and pursued witchcraft, not only as heresy, but also as a highly sexualized sphere. In fact, if you look at the Spanish manual used by the Inquisition courts in Mexico and Lima in 1569 and then in Cartagena de Indias in 1610, many of the cases were related to sexuality. I am attaching the link to the PDF document in the biography of the transcript. Let us continue with the Inquisition's obsession with mestizaje and sexuality. Viveros Vigoya cites Luis Mott's research in Brazil, noting that many of the sacrileges investigated by the Inquisition in Brazil had sexual content. But Brazil was not the only one under strict scrutiny. Viveros Vigoya quotes Jaime Borja a scholar who tells us about the Colombian case by saying that the sexuality of black, indigenous, and mestizo populations was subjected to stricter scrutiny. Thus, racialized populations, that is, people of color, were assumed to commit sins of cohabitation, adultery, and sodomy. Also, Witchcraft was linked to prostitution and sexually licentious behaviors. So the lives of minorities were examined with a magnifying glass, judged harshly, and even taken out of proportions, especially during the witch-hunting season, while the white elites were given a pass under the old saying, El que peca y reza, empata. If you sin and pray it all goes away. But do not worry, the church's effort to reach every individual and social group failed, and thus spaces for freedom and autonomy sprang. But it is time to cross the bridge that takes us from the Inquisition to modernity we will explore how the project to consolidate and modernize nation-states gave women and minorities false hope. Thus, the dream of improving their status and freeing themselves from religious and social scrutiny did not appear. With the arrival of the 20th century across Latin America, improving the race became a focal point in national campaigns, hygienist policies, Eugenic programs or racial selection, urban development, access to education, and modernity were welcomed. Viveros Vigoya tells us that in the Colombian case, the family was the focus of the remedial and formative strategies undertaken to reform the population. Women were considered responsible for reforming or raising the children of the homeland to consolidate a new, strong, and vigorous nation. This reminds me of Nazi, communist, and capitalist discourses about the tremendous responsibility that lies on women, the commitment of raising families and, therefore, a nation. Consequently, manuals for good manners and domestic life were designed to guide women in their future obligations as the mothers of modern society. Viveros Vigoja states that each task according to their stage of life was delimited. That includes their roles as mothers, the ideal age to marry, start sex life, and have children. Hence, single women turning 30 were distressed if they had not found a husband. As the old Spanish saying goes, quedaría para vestir Santos She would end up dressing saints, referring to nuns. Also, it was likely that the spinster would be considered an individual who contributed less to society. If in previous centuries women were only a means for family reproduction or bodies that served for male entertainment, they were now seen as responsible for the national progress but do not believe the story so quickly. The apparent ascension of women's status or social role comes with a catch. The woman was now recognized as in charge of the home economy, creating a cozy nest for her husband. A warm, clean, and organized home undoubtedly would ensure that the husband was kept away from the vices of gambling, alcohol, and street women. Consequently, the man could become a working specimen of the tremendous productive system of modernity. Sadly, the belief that a good woman knows how to keep her husband happy has not vanished. I have heard from older women and men how important a woman is in her family's success often working against her own aspirations. Viveros Bigoya tells us that women were seen and represented by medical discourse not only as biological mothers, but also as moral mothers of children, family, society, and the nation. A study by Donna Guy in 1991 in Argentina, quoted by Viveros, refers to the participation of feminist women in the definition of motherhood accepted as a destination to be fulfilled by the modern women. Donna Guy goes on to say that feminist writers like Raquel Camaña linked motherhood to democracy and raised the centrality of the project of a vital democracy anchored in the family. Remember the sarcastic words of the Argentinian writer Alfonsina Storni in episode 30, Diary of a Girl Good for Nothing. This morning, when I woke up, I remembered that someone said that a fulfilled man should in life have a child, plant a tree, and write a book. I wonder if these tasks are still requisites for achieving happiness. What do you think, dear listener? And what does all this have to do with social and racial minorities? This whole tale of the vital female role in building a modern nation was part of hygienist policies. Such policies were supported by the currents of positivism, where scientific knowledge is above all. Social Darwinism, the application of natural selection in human societies, and Forensic Anthropology, which reinforced the idea of dangerous social classes. It was believed that such a population degenerated society and thus should be feared, re-educated, or eradicated. These included those suffering from tuberculosis, syphilis, alcoholism, prostitutes, bombs, beggars, and criminals, as well as seditious people and racial minorities. The sexuality of these groups was a source of mistrust. For Latin American leading classes, people of indigenous or African origin were an impediment to national development. I have often heard educated people say that indigenous people or Afro-descendant groups that continue traditional practices are backward because they do not want to educate themselves or keep with the times or do not accept state efforts to instill progress. This same progress today has brought irreversible environmental problems The extinction of fauna, flora, ancestral people, and languages. The same progress that overwhelms us with jobs of more than 40 hours a week, sells us junk food, numbs us in front of the TV for hours, and drowns us in bank loans. The same progress that delays the retirement age and encourages us to spend more on things, making us desire more than we need, as my husband nicely put it. It gets to the point that your self-worth is linked to your job productivity. My dad once said, Miha, the only way to build anything is to ask for a loan. I was terrified. I am afraid of debt. Then I realized that he was somewhat right. That is how the system was designed, so that we're always in debt to it. Then, under the banner of progress, the Republican political culture centered its discourse around working men's dignity and civil rights. And this hard working man was allowed to exercise his patriarchal authority at home as long as he fulfilled his public responsibilities. In some sad cases, the patriarchal authority was translated as drinking at home the occasional domestic violence, hanging out with his buddies or lady friends whenever the man wanted. Viveros Bigoya says that such power to men was granted through the control of women's sexuality within the framework of a vigorous but civilized masculinity. However, the modern nation's patriarchal pact, a mutation of colonial religious forms, based on family values, contradicts itself. Viveros Vigoya states that while the pact sought more flexible race relations, it also sought to exercise a strong control of the moral laxity attributed to racialized groups through policies and programs of social intervention. And while promoting the values of modernity, the pact safeguarded women from them. In other words, though elevated to the pedestal of being the axis of the family and therefore of the nation, women were always suspicious and considered incompetent. Ask yourself, why for so long positions of power were occupied solely by men? Many times I heard older women consider themselves less intelligent Only their offspring and their husbands have the brains that the poor lady believed did not inherit. Ultimately, the beneficiaries of modernity were only heterosexual white men from a good family. Now, I do not intend to rise in anger against those who have benefited from the old ways. They probably do not even know how they got there. Entitlement is also rooted in ignorance. The problem lies in what we assume is right, in the stories and prayers that we repeat as creeds without questioning whose agenda they support. For there to be a wealthy top 1%, there must be 99% who carry them on their shoulders. Suppose we, the 99%, begin to shake off the ideologies inherited from our families and societies. In that case, we may be able to unplug ourselves from the matrix. My parents instilled in me the virtues of skepticism. My dad said not to follow others blindly, think for myself, and question what others wanted. My mom still warns me to suspect passionate speeches because there's always something else. Let's remember the short story with which we began the episode, Revenge of the Mermaids. In it, Mayra Santos Febres warns us about that old belief that sirens by sheer evil caused the ruin of men. Instead, she suggests that perhaps the old version is just a poorly told tale. Without further ado... It is time to present the interview with Puerto Rican author Mayra Santos Febres. In the interview, the author reminds us of the need to reassess and question the inherited forms of models that no longer serve us. So my first question is, uh, what are the obstacles that as a Puerto Rican woman Afro-descendant what are the obstacles
2: that come with all those roles and labels? Well, you know, uh, humanness is kind of complicated because uh, identities that come, don't, don't come separate. They, they do not work separated. I know that in the States there is, the, and in many other places, thank God, <laughs> there is all these new identities that we are trying to, to, to use in order to be included in equity and injustice. But in a person, most of these identities overlap. It's called intersectionality. So yes, I am an afro boricua woman writer. And sometimes it is quite complex and difficult to be able to to juggle all these things. But actually, I live it every day because I am not one day an Afro-descendant and one day a, a woman and one day Puerto Rican. I am all those things at the same time as many, many other people are. In the world. And uh, I know that the people that have been um, uh, visibilized and also that have had all the access to the literary world are mainly men, Creole descendants in Latin America, or you know, people that are from uh, descendants from Europe, Spain, French, German, all those people have all the open doors. And sometimes they don't write that well, but they win all the prizes. And uh, the other thing is that, typically, women that are racialized as Afro-descendants or indigenous, native indigenous uh, people, eh, are looked down upon as if what we do, the the stories that we can tell and the craft of storytelling and writing is not good enough because it doesn't resemble the European ways. Well... And it is not an obstacle. I, I always think of it as a challenge. It is a challenge that I, that actually have given me a lot of focus because I know what I have to do. I know exactly what I have to change, and I know the stories that I have that have to be told, and I know that I need to get as far as I can with the help of my friends and and fellow teachers and readers in order to get where I need to get, which is to hit and just destroy the myth that only one culture is the one that has the privilege to be universal and the privilege to talk for all of us and the privilege to say what is culture and what it is not. Uh, and since it is so clear, the path is so clear, I don't have to dwindle and, and be confused because it is, it is clear. I know exactly what I have to do and that is a privilege. Those are powerful words. You're
0: actually giving me, you know, a goal here. I'm, I'm seeing it clear. The clouds are moving. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> Thank you.
2: One last question. If you can share with us an anecdote. Well, there's so many, but I, I if I have to pick one, I will pick the one uh, when I graduated. My mother was a Spanish teacher. I am the daughter, the proud daughter of a Spanish teacher teacher and a history teacher my father was a history teacher and he was built he is a baseball player well right now he's not a baseball player because he's 80 years old but he is um ooh, I don't like that that much he is a Pentecostal preacher <laughs> but we've always been working with the word uh he's very patriarchal and we fight a lot but I I love him dearly and um and one of the wonderful things is that uh, my mother decided she knew, she knew me very well. I, I am a Pisces, I don't like to fight, I just like to win. But um, she was a, a school teacher in a very harsh uh, public school. And she said, Well, Maida, I, I don't think, I, she usually took me to all the schools where she taught. And she said, "Well, Mayra, this one is a tough one. I don't think that you're gonna make it. <laughs> you know, you you're a very weird kid. Uh, you're hypersensitive. You like reading, and you know, black girls they have to be tough. And you're not tough enough in order to 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 survive that school. So I'm going to fight in order for you to go to this uh, Catholic school with a scholarship. Please, please maintain your grade. So I was very, very." tense when I was a kid because I couldn't have a B or I would lose my scholarship. We had to make it work. I had no option to not be intelligent. I don't think that I was born this way. I just learned to be intelligent because if not, I couldn't study. And I wasn't tough enough in order to make it in the streets. I really wasn't. Nor cool. I was just a nerd. So um, I went to that school and I graduated from it. Uh, and it took a lot of work, and my mom and me we worked very closely in order to make it through. And uh, there I was in my twelfth grade graduation, and I was I was picked the class president. I was the only one, or maybe I, there was three Afro-Equians in that school, and I was the class president. And I wanted to, I was supposed to do a speech as a valedictorian and a class president, and all these things that we just needed to achieve in order for me to study because if not, I wouldn't be able to. And, um, and my mother was, I couldn't understand why my mother was at the back of the chapel, almost outside of the chapel, not wanting to go in because it was scary when you, when you're in this place where everybody's white and everybody has more money than you and everybody has better hair and better clothes and everything. Um But she taught me how to be proud, yet she was dubious of her own value. So when it was my turn to, to do my speech, actually she helped me write that speech. I said, "Mom, please come forward." And she wouldn't. And it was like a, a really important tug of war there, because I just stood still and I waited. And everybody started looking at her and looking at what is she waiting for? It was my mother. And my mother, she had a green shirt like this. She started saying, no, 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 no. And I just stood like that until everybody clapped and she had to walk in front. And I said, well, this is for you, mom, because this is your graduation. I had enough strength. To do that, it was the first moment in which I decided that I just wasn't going to to let it slip. That I was going to start for my own because this wasn't. I wouldn't have been able to do this without her. And I want justice, <laughs> you know, justice for all of us. So, so it was so clear. Also, another of those moments in which was it was very clear for me what has to be done. Um, we need justice and we need equity. And we need to fight for the rights of all human beings and we need to to help Mother Earth to heal because if not, all of us is, are going to be dead. This is what needs to be done. So we have to do it. <laughs> and, and that is what literature and culture and education is all about. Beautiful. Just seems
0: like life is so easy and yet we just get so entangled in... I don't know, whatever we think that life is, that is so
2: complicated. and But no, you make it look like it's just this easy. Come on. (laughs) It is easy. And another thing, you know, is just that there is another myth that's called capitalism. I don't mind money. Actually, I love money. It's tiny and it's very fun. But I don't think that money is for anything else but to gain access and experiences. It's not to gain, to be accumulative. You know, accumulation is pointless. And, um, and if you don't use what you got for anything that is not to accumulate, you, you're actually losing your time on earth.
0: Before we conclude the episode, I want to leave you with one last poem. By Mayra Santos Febres, translated by Vanessa Perez Rosario, that you can find in the website smallaxe.net. Air is lacking, wanting, so the journey goes on to the illegitimate city in the ocean's deep. Undocumented alveoli explode. A melancholy song. Air is lacking. But what's different on the surface? If on the surface everything else is wanting. Everything for the cooking pot and for the breast. For the pocket and the eyes. Cold and calloused from walking, so, and waiting. Air is lacking. Wanting. Still wanting. A few lights glisten among the algae. Maybe in the oceans deep, there is an excess of everything that suffocates here. And that is all for today. Remember to share the episodes and write us a nice email through our website, www.trescuentos.com. Spoiler alert. The next season has to do with imagining the future. Yes, ladies and gentlemen. We will return with the beginnings of science fiction in Latin America. Until the next cuento or story. Adios, adios. Tres Cuentos is an exercise of creative writing, researching, and retelling. This podcast was produced, recorded, and edited by Carolina Quiroga Stoltz. Proof Listening and Proof Reading by my good friend Don Heimel. Remember to follow Tres Cuentos on Facebook and Instagram as Tres Cuentos Podcast, or you can visit our website, www.trescuentos.com. The music and sound effects were downloaded from the YouTube audio library. The list of credits per song and the sources of this story can be found in the transcript, that is, in our website. Thanks for listening. Adios, adios.